Hello and welcome to the Taste Uber Music Podcast. I'm Diana Lynn. After a 40-year career in corporate America, I took a huge U-turn and became a volunteer DJ on 90.1 FM KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Since 2010, I've been the host, programmer, and engineer of a weekly Americana Roots music show, The Tasty Brew. With this podcast, I'll be sharing conversations with artists and music industry insiders with the goal of entertaining and educating the listening audience, all while giving a voice to the music makers that are underserved or ignored by mainstream media. As a music business professional, Brad Paul has actively promoted a wide variety of music genres through his work as a radio promoter, radio host and producer, concert promoter, video producer, and director. I first met Brad nearly 10 years ago at my first Americana Music Association conference in Nashville, after I had just gotten on the air on KKFI with the Tasty Brew Music Radio Show. He has been at every AMA and Folk Alliance International Conference I've attended since that time, advocating on behalf of his clients and very often serving as moderator or participant on multiple radio-centric panels. Brad graduated from Emerson College in Boston, Massachusetts with a BS degree in communication. While at Emerson, he co-created the popular morning show, The Coffee House, on Emerson's student-run radio station, WERS, where he also served as the program director. He was responsible for bringing Live at Passim to WERS and produced and hosted the program for three years from the venerable music venue in Harvard Square. Brad hosted and produced The Folk Show on WEVO, New Hampshire Public Radio, and Folk on WGBH, Boston's NPR affiliate. He is a founding member of the Americana Music Association and has served on its board for 13 years with three years served as president. As Vice President of Promotion for Concord Music Group, New Rounder, Village Roadshow, and Senior Vice President of National Promotion for Rounder Records, he promoted artists as diverse as Allison Krauss, Paul Simon, Steve Martin, John Mellencamp, Willie Nelson, Raul Malo, and many more to a variety of radio formats, including AAA, Americana, Country, Folk, and syndicated programs from National Public Radio and Public Radio International. Since its inception in 2013, Brad Paul Media, a full-service radio promotion and artist development consulting company, whose goal is to help artists increase their brand awareness through radio exposure and develop their career by tapping into his network of music industry professionals, has scheduled over 1,000 radio in-studio appearances and garnered tens of thousands of radio spins for over 100 clients. He has sent me some amazing talent over the years that I've had the privilege of introducing rather exclusively to a Kansas City radio and KKFI streaming audience. When he reached out to gauge my interest in interviewing his 2020 talent slate in New Orleans at Folk Alliance, I responded, sure, I would love to, but only if he agreed to sit down with me for a chat also. Many thanks to Brad for arranging my subsequent interview with Chris Masterson and Eleanor Whitmore, also known as the Mastersons. Enjoy my conversation with bona fide music industry insider, Brad Paul. You started in radio. Yes. College radio, which I find a lot of of us in this industry did started in college radio and may have gone off and did some other things. Um, but I wanted to ask you, do you even think radio is still relevant or, or how it's evolved? You know, uh, I get that question quite a lot these do days you? and I it still matters. Yeah. Uh, I just two days ago got an uh, email from an artist I'm working with, Michaela Ann, Mm-hmm. And she's got this amazing uh, new record out on uh, on the Uprock Records, and 
the current single is uh, Run Away With Me. And she was all delighted because she had gotten in within the space of uh, 24 hours a bunch of texts and Twitters or tweets and emails from people who had, who had heard her record on the radio station in LA and the station in Philadelphia and the station in Colorado and you know people were coming to her shows because they've heard her on the radio good old-fashioned well, radio you know, so it does absolutely have uh, a positive effect on an artist's career I think that when people tell me oh I don't listen to the radio anymore especially young younger people I'll say, well, if you're listening to sound moving through the air, you're listening to radio. Mm -hmm. It's just on a different platform or coming to you in a different package, you know, perhaps on terrestrial, uh, traditional terrestrial radio. But um, I feel that radio still matters. Um, When people find out that I'm on the radio, their eyes still light up. And especially if it's a musician, they, they still aspire you know, to being on the radio. I mean, as someone who's been around radio and listening to it my whole life, it's radio that stopped serving the needs, I think, of, of me as a listener. I quit listening because I didn't like what I was hearing and mm. there was too much commercialism to it in the same, you know, 10 or 15 songs or whatever. So are you still, other than the money, you know, that you can, that you can make, are you still excited about radio? As you know, platform? I mean, what I think is exciting is the fact that I can listen to KKFI from my office in Boston, Massachusetts. I can, you know, just the other day I was checking in to hear what the, the current is playing in Minneapolis and WFUV in New York. The radio is available now at the touch of your finger from anywhere uh, around the country or around the world for that matter. So for somebody to say, oh, radio is irrelevant, you know, there are so many great stations. Now, I agree with you. In some markets, there's no good radio. In my definition of good radio is stations that are not playing the same uh, currents, you know, new top 40 hits over and over and over. Uh, my definition of great radio are, are stations that are actively exploring new music, breaking new artists, but mixing that up with some familiarity, um, playing a wider range of styles of music, and it could be in a format that is what we call block programming. So there's the three-hour bluegrass show, and then there's the three-hour, uh, you know, international mm-hmm. uh, world pop, or three hours of blues. Uh, some stations mix it up and weave it in and out. Some stations are, you know, playing more of one particular style, it might be what we call adult alternative, uh, which you know would be artists like Jason Isbell and and Hosier and Beck, mixed in with the Beatles and the Kinks and the Rolling Stones, and you know, and that sounds like the tasty real music radio. Show. Yeah, you know, that's <laughs> uh, that's great too. What what I don't care for, unfortunately, is too prevalent these days are just, you know, the, let's play the top hits. Let's not play a record. The, the line I hate most is the one when the programmer says to me, Brad, we don't make hits, we play hits. So they're only playing songs that have already hit the top 40, or in some cases, top 20 
And those stations you'll usually find are part of the big conglomerate chains, whether it's uh, iHeartRadio or uh, MS or Viacom. And they're being told what to play by a hand, you know, small handful of bean counters, and that just sucks the soul out of radio, in my opinion. But if you look, uh, ask around, you can find great radio at the touch of your fingertip. I love the station out of Boston. Is it WUMB? WUMB. One of my favorite stations on what, the planet. I, I used to own a small cottage on a lake in Ohio that had been passed down generations in my family and there's no terrestrial radio available but I was able to pick up you know through Wi-Fi um, that I was getting from McDonald's across the street <laughs> WMB one way or the other oh my goodness I was listening uh, you know stumbled across it and I just loved it and yeah. I had it on all the time um, and see there's the difference you have passionate on-air hosts who know their music and they're you know they're digging deep you've got um, uh, uh, Albert in the afternoon who used to be Albert O on WBCN back in the days but Albert is just a wealth of information it has such depth and you know he has the uh, the daily Dylan where we play a Dylan song but also playing you know the uh, Lula Wiles you know the latest and greatest of the up-and-coming young artists probably forgotten more than he knows at this point you know might might be so um, how did your radio career morph into a media company? Well, I went to Emerson in Boston precisely to be on the radio, be on WERS, as you mentioned at mm -hmm. the top mm -hmm. of the interview, uh, college radio. But I went there because I wanted to do radio. Uh, I was inspired as a kid listening to Top 40 radio. Dale Dorman, WRKO, Boston. Mm -hmm. And then... High flying, W-I-N-G. There you go. <laughs> uh, and then when I got into high school, I discovered what was then, uh, you know, the underground freeform station, WBCN, was album, you know, they're playing deep cuts off of, uh, you know, Santana and the Grateful Dead and Rolling Stones and so on. And, but they had a certain uh, irreverence to their delivery and funny and cool. I mean, it was, I remember first discovering them on the radio with my pals after school and going, wow, what is this? I want to do that. Yeah, I had the same. I want to do that, you know. I had the same reaction. Um, didn't get the same result when I went to the, <laughs> yeah. the local um, FM radio station that was just getting started in St. Louis back in the late 60s. And I said, you know, I'd love to be on the radio. I'm such a passionate fan of music and I'm the liner note geek. And is there a school I can go to? You know, I would really like to do that. And honey, there aren't any girls in rock and roll radio. Can you, can you type? This is 1967, yeah. eight or whatever, you know, can yeah. you type? And I said, well, yeah, I can type and shake shorthand, but I want to be on the radio. Well, we need the receptionist. Uh, That's what we need. I should have taken the gig because I just went and became a receptionist and secretary for somebody else. Yeah. But I should have taken the gig and as times change, you know, kind of wheedled my way into the, uh, in the studio, but it was not happening in 1967 or eight for, you know, a 17 year old girl that really wanted to be on the radio. So it took me about four years, 45 years to get on the radio. Um, but to answer your question, how did it morph into my own media company? Well, four years at Emerson, I was very involved with the radio station, was on the air as a freshman, and uh, developed a very popular morning show called The Coffee House, which uh, I guess we would call Americana today, but it was long before that phrase had been coined as a format. Mix of all styles of roots music, really. 
became very popular in Boston, seventh largest market in the country. So there were a lot of people listening. And lucky for me, Rounder Records was based in uh, that area in Cambridge. And they became very aware of my show. And I was having all their artists on my program when they, when they would be touring and play in Boston. And Rounder was a big part of the show because it had all the best roots artists. And lo and behold, I got a call uh, when I graduated to come work for them as a, as a uh, radio uh, promotions director. And at first I thought, well, I, I just spent four years at Emerson to do radio. Why would I go work for a record label? But I didn't have a radio job offer in hand. And I thought, well, this will be a great way to find that wonderful radio gig I want. Be talking to radio stations all day long. So I took the gig at Rounder. And as time went on and I spent more time talking to radio programmers all over the country, I realized this, uh, several things were happening, sadly. One was the, the cool radio that got me inspired when I was in high school was going away. The uh, commercial stations, those great underground rock stations, the jocks' ability to play what they wanted was being taken away and replaced by program directors, so they were being told what to play. and that didn't interest me so much. I was kind of spoiled. I was, I had become the program director, was programming the station, had this amazingly popular morning show playing what I wanted to play, the music that I felt passionate about. And so I looked at myself in the mirror, I said, Brad, do you want to, do you want to go work at a radio station and play music you're, you don't care about? Uh, and, and, you know, basically have to take on the responsibility of knowing that there's no job security in radio, the pay is terrible, and you'll have to be a gypsy uh, for most of your career, traveling right. from market to market as stations change format and all of a sudden you're out of a job. Or stay in your hometown of Boston, working for one of the coolest labels on the planet, working with amazing artists that you love and are passionate about. Hmm, let me think about that. Pros and cons, <laughs> pros and cons. So uh, the short end of that story is uh, it's almost 30 years at Rounder Records, having gone to work there right out of college uh, up until 2012. And then uh, the company was sold and layoffs mm. happened and my number came up. So seven years ago this month, I started my own company, Brad Paul Media, continuing to work with artists and labels and you know getting their records played on the radio, still talking to radio stations every day all around the country. So when you want to, were one of the founding members of the AMA. Yes. You were still in the record business. Yeah, I was still at Rounder. Absolutely. That was uh, an effort to give a home for all these amazing artists that didn't have a radio home, didn't have a bin in the record stores. Remember record stores? Um, you know, didn't have a Grammy category. And there, I'm talking about artists like Emmy Lou Harris. Oh, and I know. Rodney Crowell and Nancy Griffith and Alison Krauss. Guy Clark. Guy Clark and Bela Fleck and, you know, the list goes on. Uh, at the time, there was a radio trade magazine, Gavin. Uh, Gavin magazine was based out of San Francisco, and they had a real uh, sort of mission statement where they championed new formats. They wanted to see new formats develop and succeed. So they were the first ones to... Uh, have a weekly AAA album, adult alternative, AAA radio uh, chart. They had a jazz chart. They had a hip hop chart. Of course, they had the you know top forty and country charts, all the mainstream formats. But they they worked hard. They had staff on uh, that worked there that worked hard to identify 
what else was going on at radio beside the top 40 formats. So their AAA chart became very successful, uh, but still the, a lot of those stations weren't playing these artists that I just mentioned. And myself and uh, Rob Bleetstein and John Grimson, two other fellows that were in the music business at the time, kind of put our heads together and went and had a meeting with Gavin and recommended that um, they start an Americana radio chart. So that was the beginning of it. And uh, then I had the idea of having an Americana radio conference and talked them into doing that up on Squam Lake in New Hampshire where they filmed on Golden Pond. Oh my goodness. And it was a gorgeous hundred year old family camp and we put on this amazing conference where radio programmers came in from and all what over year, the country. what year would this be? Oh, uh, that was around 95, I think, 96, somewhere in there. And Amy Lou Harris showed up and the Blazers and Ricky Skaggs and Doug Somm and Wayne the Train Hancock. Oh my goodness. And, uh, Buddy and Julie Miller. Mm -hmm all showed up at this absolute off the beaten path camp on this gorgeous lake and we spent four days talking about how do we make this work? How do we make this Americana thing work? And, and we talked about having a dream of having a, you know, growing this conference so it would not just be radio but it would incorporate retail and publicity and touring and marketing and all the different aspects mm -hmm. of uh, that's about the time I was introduced to the so-called Americana genre. I mean, being from Kansas City, I grew up with rock and roll, blues, and jazz. And um, I started dating and, and, and ultimately ended up with a gentleman from Austin, Texas, who then introduced me to all of this these Texas songwriters. Like, I'd never heard of Guy Clark before. Yeah. I'd never heard of Joey Lee, the Flatlanders. Or sure. This is like 94, 95. And took me down a completely different musical path that I've been on ever since. And really don't plan to get off any anytime <laughs> soon although I am opening up coloring outside the lines and discovering indigenous music and, and Latin jazz and, and other things that I just love but um, thank you for sharing kind of the, the genesis story of how that got started. Well that was the beginning of it and then several years later uh, in Austin at the South by Southwest conference a group of us got together and said okay let's take the next step you know, there's the uh, International Bluegrass Music Association. Mm -hmm. There's the Folk Alliance Association. Let's start an Americana Music Association to try to keep growing the, uh, you know, the idea of the rising tide, ri raising all boats approach. And so we agreed to meet again in Nashville uh, six months later. And from that uh, was born the Americana Music Association. And it was incorporated as a uh, trade association and board of directors and a president and now we have this annual Americana Music Conference with an award show that's tele televised on PBS. There's an Americana Grammy category. Uh, I remember you would, you know, when we first started, the word Americana was not used in, in, any, um, in any print publications. Even Billboard magazine had a uh, for some reason, a, a hair across their butt, they would, they had a flat out editorial rule that they would not um, acknowledge the term Americana. If they're reviewing a record, it, they would not call it an Americana record, even if it was. Now, I don't know if that was because they, you know, it was a sort of um, business rivalry and they thought Gavin Magazine was a competitor 
which it was in some ways. Uh, and so because Gavin had coined it first with their chart, they refused to use it. Uh, but the point is that in general, Americana was not a term that was used uh, in, in publications and it wasn't, there were certainly no bins in record stores like that. Mm -mm. And here we have all that, you know, now Billboard will, you know, right. I mean, I just heard the other day, sadly, on, on all things, or Morning Edition on NPR, uh, a piece on David Olney mm -hmm. passing, and, it, and they started the piece by saying, we got some sad news today from the Americana world. And as sad as I was to hear about David's passing, it made me feel good that that was, that's how they introduced the piece. Validation. Um, I went on the air in about 2008, 2010, something like that, and I was the first kind of Americana Roots show on what was predominantly a blues and jazz and rock station. And I had to keep explaining it over and over again what I was trying to do or, you know, or what that genre, uh, what the umbrella, you know, encompassed of Americana music. I don't have to do that so much no, uh, it's, anymore it's, it's at all. People know what, I talk, what I'm talking yeah. about if I say that my show is an Americana slash Roots music. You know, they get it. now or what mm -hmm. that's another question I get asked often by artists that are trying to make their way and uh, similar to your first question about is radio still relevant I think labels are very much relevant obviously it depends on the deal depends mm -hmm. on what kind of contract you as the artist is signing you want to make sure that you've got an attorney in your corner negotiating the best deal possible but I work with independent artists, what we call DIY artists, do-it-yourself. Right. I work with artists on labels, some independent, some major, and the, the task of being your own record label and being the artist at the same time is a monumental task. It requires a lot of work, and that's a lot of time that the artist is spending on the record business side of it, not on the creative side. Right. So it's tough. Some are better at it than others. Some have the left brain, right brain thing down, and they can pull it off. It's not so easy for some. Well, they it, have to do so much on their own already. I mean, their own publicity, their social media, their own booking. The, the true DIY artists, I have a lot of them stay with me sometimes when they're coming through Kansas City. And it's a 24-7 job. I is. mean, they get up first thing in the morning, and while they're drinking their coffee, they're online and they're, they're booking or they're doing social, social media. So I know a lot of them have you know, establish their own publishing and their own record company to not only keep creative control over everything, but how, like you said, how many hours are there in the day and how much energy and passion are you sucking out of your, your, um, your total being because you're having to deal with all these other things. Um, so that's where the record label comes in, mm -hmm. you know, having that team, having a built-in team, uh, a label that has, uh, people on staff dealing with social media, dealing with publicity and radio promotion. That's a huge burden lifted off the artist that allows them more time to be creative because that's the, that's the reason why they started doing this in the first place, it's creating music. So that's a really key element and I will say if it's a good deal, go with it because it frees you up to be the artist and not the business person. So I'm a young, unsigned, unknown artist, and I'm sitting at the bar down there at the Sheridan at Folk Alliance, and I happen to be sitting next to 
Brad Paul. Mm-hmm. We strike up this conversation and what's the best advice that you can give somebody that probably has no money, has probably hawked something to get here, mm-hmm. you know, or had a fundraiser or a GoFundMe campaign or something just to be able to spend $2,000 or $3,000 to come to something like this. But there's talent. Let's let's assume there's there's talent there. You know, what what do you tell somebody like that? What's the what should they be trying to get out of a conference like this? Well, it's first and foremost do the work, right? So focus on your craft and your songwriting and your playing, and be the best you can possibly be. And in a conference like this, you want to a lot of the work has to be done way ahead of time. Don't show up here expecting stuff to happen. Plan it out so you're doing as many showcases as possible. If you got an official showcase, great, but don't let it stop there. Book as many private showcases as you can. There are many examples I could give where uh, an artist or group shows up here. Nobody knows who they are yet. They've booked six or seven, maybe eight showcases. And that first showcase, few people show up and they're blown away and then they start talking about it. Buzz. And the and then the buzz builds up and one of my favorite examples is uh, Birds of Chicago. Mm-hmm. A few years ago, they didn't have a record deal, they didn't have a, a record, they had one coming. Um, the first showcase I went to see, there was maybe six, six or eight people in the room and the next one I went to see, there was maybe 15, 20. By the end of the conference, their last showcase on Saturday night, you couldn't get into it. It was packed and the line was down the hall. So- Make a great movie, wouldn't it? it, Absolutely. And fast forward four years later, they've got a record deal with Signature Sounds. They're touring the country. They've got a booking agent. They're doing really well. So it's it's, uh, the best thing you can do to, to take advantage of spending your money to get here to a Folk Alliance is be seen as much as possible. The more showcases you do, the more opportunity people have to see you. We have our own example of that. Kelly Hunt, who's a dear friend of mine from Kansas City. And an artist I work with. And she came to Folk Alliance last year specifically looking for a publicist and a booking agent. She had this work in the can, as it were, and just didn't know what to do with it. And now, a year later, she was nominated for Album of the Year. year. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, it, it can happen. It can, absolutely. It can absolutely happen. Uh, we're almost uh, time for the, for the Mastersons if, they, if they're going to be able to make it. Um, what's next? Any bucket list items that you're working on? That what's what's next for Brad Paul Media? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I struggle with whether or not to expand the company mm-hmm. and, and branch into uh, you know digital platform marketing. In other words trying to get records, singles, playlisted on Spotify and uh, Apple Music, et cetera, um, or just to continue focusing on radio. And I tend to keep circling back on, you know, stay the course. Um, at this point, as I said at the top, radio still matters. I think it's a, it's not the be, be all and end all, um, by itself, most times, it's not going to be the thing that makes your career happen. Mm-hmm. But as an integral part of the whole effort, uh, publicity, 
digital marketing, social media, touring, 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 and radio all together will absolutely build a career over time. Do you have family members in your, I mean, are you going to be passing this along to someone? <laughs> or? Uh, not, not at the moment. I have two sons. Uh, one's a creative writer and the other's a video production. So I don't see uh, either one of them stepping into it. Um, I may, I have been also, the other thing that I've been thinking about is, you know, bringing someone on and sort of training them up uh, so that at some point I could start to step back a little bit mm -hmm. and, you know, keep the company going, but not uh, having to do the day-to-day -day 50, 56 hours well, a week. Well, you've done a wonderful job. You're one of the first people, names, that came into my consciousness when I took this absolute left turn out of corporate America. <laughs> <laughs> After 45 years in corporate America, um, you were one of the first people I met at Americana, but probably back in 2008, 2010, or whatever. And um, although I don't report to charts, I'm only I'm on once a week, and I'm totally independent on community radio, and I'm now branched off in this podcasting thing. Um, many, many of the artists that you represent are are very regularly on my playlist every week. Well, excellent. I'm glad I'm to hear that. I'm very thankful for the um, the guidance that you've provided to me personally. You Thank you. I have no idea, but <laughs> you, you really, really have. And I appreciate your time sure. so much today. Someone asked me this morning, in fact, um, how do I choose the artists that I work with? And the first thing is I have to love the record. Mm -hmm. I have to love what they're I doing. I would think so. Yeah. This would be brutal. If you didn't, yes. I mean, it's it's even difficult for me as, I mean, I'm just a little tiny fish, um, in the pond of Kansas City, and I have all these young artists that come on my show, or uh, I do a little house concert series, or now doing this podcast, and they're asking me this advice that they normally would be I know, would get the answers from from people like you, mm -hmm. and um, I'm I'm just trying to guide them that way. Sure. Um, so that they know there is help out there, but they're going to have to be organized. They're going to have to be professional. They're going to have to be prepared. And um, if it's meant to happen, it it will. Yeah. It will. There's the talent is really important, but there, there's a lot of luck involved. Timing well. is a big big piece of yeah, it. Yeah. Who are you looking forward to to seeing? Are well, you going to be here for the duration? Yeah, or? I'm here for the whole thing. I'm really looking forward to. Uh, uh, hearing the interview with Mavis Staples mm -hmm. later, the, the address uh, I helped out. Uh, Michelle Conceason was organizing the panels and in charge of Mavis and the keynote interview. And I said, "Well, if you thought about having Melissa Block from NPR do the interviews, I've known Melissa for years, and that's a great idea." So I put them together and helped uh, get uh, Melissa here. So looking forward to that for sure. Uh, I've got 14 artists here showcasing, so mo a lot of my focus is that is what they're doing and, and being here to support them. Um, this afternoon, Laura Cortese and the Dance Cards have this amazing uh, group that's a, a wonderful combination of the string quartet format and, and sort of a pop sensibility. What's the name again? Laura Cortese and the Dance Cards. Uh, their official showcase is uh, this evening, 6.30, I think. So be sure to check them out. I will. It'll, it'll I will. knock Thanks. your socks off. I always like, you know, ask people, who, who are you going to see? Or who should I see that I might not have on my radar? I mean, last year my 
my aha moment was rising Appalachia. I'd never heard of oh, it yes. before. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, oh, that's an interesting name. I'm going to go check them. Right. <laughs> and just was blown away. And luckily, I'm going to be interviewing them on Friday. But um, yeah, that's those those aha moments or connecting the dot moments yeah. that, that you cannot really prepare for, but that you hope for will be at, at something uh, like this. And I went back to Kansas City and I've been playing, you know, that, the heck out of that record that they released this year, all year, you know, and um, it's just what keeps me going, you know, to come to these things at this, at this age. Discovery is a big part of it. Oh that. man, it's, yeah. it's really exciting. Exciting. Well, thanks for the tip. Yeah. I'll, I'll check them out. All right. Thanks. Thank you.